1: Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. A flat return for Arsenal in the knockout stages of the Champions League. Galeno's curler in injury time gives Porto a slender lead while Arteta's men never really got going. In many ways, Porto didn't let them. Good to see 41-year-old Pepe still doing it at this level. There is hope for all of us. In the other game, Napoli and Barca show why they're not quite the same teams they were last year. A one-all draw in a game that neither dominated, but both could have won. We did get a bit of elite striking from Robert Lewandowski and Victor Ossiman. Liverpool overcome a stodgy first half and score four to beat Luton to go 4 Four points clear at the top of the premier league we'll look ahead to the reds Carabao cup final with chelsea and the premier league games as big sir jim talks to the media for the first time then everyone will laugh at me as neil harris buggers off from cambridge united after five minutes all that plus your questions and that's today's guardian football weekly on the panel today jonathan Faduba, welcome good morning max uh, hello lars hivinson good morning guys and welcome, Barry Glendening. Thank you, Max. Tom says, have Arsenal used all their goals? Michael says, has there ever been a bigger discrepancy between the quality of a winning goal and the quality of a game than we've just sat through? Uh, yeah, Porto won Arsenal nil. Uh, Gareno's injury time curler, Barry, was the difference. Um, it was a great goal after not a fascinating football match.
0: Yeah, that's about the size of it, really. I think there was this presumption that Arsenal would win this game quite comfortably. And it turned out to be far from correct. And now the presumption seems to be that they will win the second leg quite comfortably. And they may well do. But if they are to win the second leg comfortably, they'll have to do something they didn't do in this leg, which is get a shot on target. And that's quite surprising considering how clinical they've been in recent games. But in Porto, they were facing far wilier, more streetwise opposition than you know Sheffield United or West Ham, and they played really badly. Porto didn't let them play their game, and there was lots of niggly fouls by various Porto players. Uh, they crowded midfield and and didn't offer Arsenal a way through there. And you would think then that that would leave room out in the flanks for for Bukayo, Saka and Martinelli, but they didn't. Uh, any in any time the ball came. Towards Martinelli, he was immediately sort of crowded off it uh, by Juan Mario, who's very good at, at right back for Porto, and uh, the manager's son Francisco Conchao was, uh, you know, they would double up on him, and so you know, lots of hard running by Porto's players who worked very hard. Should have taken the lead in the first half uh, when. Wenderson, Galeno, who scored the winner, rifled one off the upright. Well, sort of rifled off the upright and the the angle of upright and post and then came straight back to him and he had an empty goal to to volley the ball into and somehow put it wide. Uh, But he redeemed himself with just a, a wonderful finish. But it was a sloppy goal for Arsenal to give away because Gabriele Martinelli tried to play this sort of Hollywood ball across the field to because Saka missed his target. Otavio won the ball or intercepted the pass and ended up with uh, Galeno and he scored this absolute worldie, which was completely out of character with what was otherwise a reasonably absorbing but quite dull game. And and Mikel Arteta was, was interviewed afterwards and he was quite clearly very, very angry with his players. Yeah.
1: Uh, after, after the game, um, Lars, Mark Bosnich, who I was on TV with, criticised David Rea quite a lot, actually. And as you said, his starting position for that goal was terrible. Because if you watch it, it sort of goes in the bottom. It's not right in the top corner. And it sort of went further to say like, he's cost Arsenal quite a few times this season. And it's interesting because that Ramsdale-Rea chat has quietened down quite a bit.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, far be it for me to uh, to challenge the goalkeepers' union in in this regard. Uh, and Mr. Bosnich knows more about this than I do. It just, I, from a more layman's term, in terms of that, it it looked weird, and and I think it's because the the shot isn't moving at the kind of speed you would expect a shot to have to move at to beat a goalkeeper from that range. It's it's almost like a yeah. it's almost like a cross, really, in terms of the 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 curve and the move. But when you watch the sort of when you watch it back in slow motion, it, it it's very high, it's quite high, so he he get, he can't really reach it. But he would have almost had time to sort of shuffle across a little bit and 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 change his positioning. But of course, that's a hard thing to assess as the shot is coming in. No, it it it, it looked a little bit strange, and and I he did make some mistakes earlier in the season, and I'm mean, Ramsdale's not flawless, but I do kind of still feel Arsenal may have caused themselves a bit of a headache by adding him to the mix without really upgrading that much on, on Ramsdale. I mean, but maybe I'm rating Ramsdale too highly now, but he never, occurred, never struck me as a bad goalkeeper, just one that's maybe not amazing. And that's kind of how I feel about Raya as well.
1: Hmm. Uh, Jake says, "Can you name a body part that a Porto player hasn't fallen down holding during this game?" <laughs> Charlie says, "Is there a risk that Porto have to play football in the sep- second leg?" It's funny, Jonathan, because I was focusing on Napoli Barça. I had the comms of Napoli Barça, but I'm watching this game. I saw the Porto game plan, but I didn't, it didn't feel as anti-football as that. And I, don't, I mean, obviously, I didn't hear like the commentary in the UK, so I don't know how influenced people get by commentators. Or if you thought Porto, Porto were playing sort of anti-football, kick Arsenal, stop the game at every single opportunity.
3: No, I didn't. I didn't think it was anti-football, really. To be honest, um, they weren't amazing. I mean, this isn't a vintage Porto side by any means. A lot of the players are sort of, you know, not 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 the Porto sides of old. You know, in, in the top top talents they've had, there's one or two sort of st- star names potentially. Uh, Conceição for example, is one who uh, on the wing has got a bright future, and he he was quite good in spells. But I didn't really think they intended to sort of break the game down or anything. I think both sides. I think I think Arsenal are kind of a quite a conservative team in many ways. Um, a lot of well, they had zero shots on target, and their their main sort of attacks were corners. Um, they looked most threatening from set pieces. Uh, Arsenal and and had a couple of you know Havertz had one header that he maybe could have uh, could have done better with, um, but in the first half. But I, I didn't really see much difference between the, the kind of approach in terms of how attacking either side was. Arsenal looked to control the game in that sense, but not necessarily flying all out attacking. I thought with Porto they they were. Quite scrappy was the thing I, I thought about them. It wasn't that they were maybe a neg- playing a negative style, but it was more when they sort of got into Arsenal's half, they, they just lacked a bit of nausea. They, they had this, they gave me this sort of like street baller vibes where imagine like, you, you know, like you're playing five aside and you've got this sort of te- the technical five aside players who are sort of trying to, I don't know, hit the ball off the, in a cage or whatever, trying to hit the ball off the wall and go around you and stuff like that and, you know, trying little things, um, little moves. And but they just didn't quite come off. The final third play was scrappy and, um, you know, as I said, the final ball wasn't great, but the goal was magnificent when it came to it. I think a lot of people were expecting Arsenal to win the second leg, but when it came to it, Martinelli, Saka didn't really, really show up in this game.
0: Presuming that those uh, people who are complaining about Porto were Arsenal fans, I think this is a throwback to the Wenger era where he got very sniffy indeed if teams he considered beneath his didn't roll out the red carpet and just usher his players through to to allow them shots on goal. Um, and to be fair, uh, uh, Arteta didn't really complain about that. He did complain about Porto shithousery at corners, but I think that was six of one and half a dozen of the other because Ben White was constantly trying to get up in uh, Porto goalkeeper Diogo Costa's grill. Uh, and actually ended up being wrestled into the back of the net while one corner was being delivered in the second half, which I thought was quite funny. Um, so, you know, Porto played how they played. I thought they looked more dangerous throughout, always looked more likely to score. And uh, yeah, Arsenal have given themselves a bit of a problem. They should be able to turn it round, but they might not.
3: I mean, I agree with Barry, and let's not forget as well that it was Arteta that took off... Um took off their nominated forward, Trossard, for a midfielder, Jorginho, kind of at nil-nil and looked more to sort of solidify that midfield rather than say they were going gung-ho and throwing on forwards trying to get a win. So I didn't really necessarily agree with that idea that Porto were uh, trying to sort of negative their way to a to um, uh, uh you know to the results so, no I didn't really necessarily see
0: that there's certainly not Jose Marino's Porto that won the tournament in <laughs> 2000 and what was it four now that that was a negative porto no,
1: portal. no. Well, presumably Pepe was still like 54 then even though he was you know kicking about around Real Madrid yes Lars
2: and I wonder about that Jorginho thing I mean the, the big x factor with him is that we don't know what his fitness fitness situation is, because of course it's been said that he's been carrying and, and for a long time and stuff, but after he was so influential in that Liverpool game, and that Arsenal midfield worked so well then, I, I, I was a little bit surprised that he didn't start. I mean, and again, it might be he's not able to, but it just... It, it it seemed that that was the midfield against tough opposition that kind of made sense, because he gives them a bit of tactical nous in there, he moves the ball well, and it frees up Declan Rice to roam around a little bit more. Whereas when you're playing the the Burnleys and the West Hams of this world, the various sort of disjointed, clarish sort of rabble, then uh, then you can sort of just have Rice in there and, and all the attacking guys can sort of be free. Uh, I, I do wonder... I don't know. Maybe maybe they underestimated Porto a little bit. Maybe they thought this was the game they could boss and and, and play as if you were playing a, a a less good Premier League team. I don't know. But, but it's it's a funny one with Porto because I, I would refer us to the the very excellent Tom Kunders of Portugal who covers the Portuguese league and knows everything. Who sort of c- commented after the game that uh, that this is probably the least talented Porto squad in twenty years. Yet the coach uh, Conceição, leads them to victory. Uh, through being tactically clever, I mean Porto. They've not scored a lot of goals domestically. Like they've scored 37 goals in 22 games. Um, sporting, by comparison, has scored 60. So they're not they're not exactly a swashbuckling team in Portugal. But they are. you are they are very niggly, and they managed to stop Arsenal from getting any kind of rhythm. And Arsenal maybe maybe lacking a bit of maturity. Very few players in this team has played much in the Champions League before. I guess it's only Havertz, really. So, um, that that probably was one of those nights where they needed a few more cool, cooler heads on the field.
0: This this was Porto's sixth consecutive clean sheet
1: at home. So, you know, they, they know what they're doing. Theo, Theo Walcott was on the radio last night. I've made a really, what I thought was a really interesting point about Premier League players don't play in the evening very much. And so they're not used to playing in the evening. So they're sort of bored or they're, you know, they've. They just don't know what to do with their day or like the, the, the structure of the day means they just go for walks and have sleeps and eat chicken and, you know, have to read all the data that they have to, you know, that, that they've been given by the manager. And so by the evening, they're just sort of, they're past being ready to play football. <laughs> Which I suppose it's got quite... If you have a routine, right? You sort of know when your kickoff is.
2: I guess we kind of assume that they all do really important sort of sports science-y related sort of preparation stuff so they're at peak physical condition. But I once, I once asked John Anarisa, like what he did during the day before the, the big game in Istanbul, of course, uh, expecting there'd be something very fascinating, like maybe... <laughs> but uh but it turned out he'd been like binge watching 24 in the hotel most of the day and was I guess, was sort of channeling the spirit of jack bauer as he was running around so i mean i don't know it's a very good point i mean because they can't really do anything they have to just kind of be ready
0: it's like when we have a live show max or if we're doing a tour you sort of have to yeah. come up with a, a routine and mine invariably watched involved watching escape to the country and uh the repair shop, you know, then you have a shower. Slightly different vibe. Yeah. <laughs> Go and have one pint on my own, which I suppose you can't do if you're about to play a football match. And uh, then turn up at the venue and hang around for ages, you know, just doing not very much. You know, Eating that's crisps. Why
1: we, that's why we deliver. <laughs> That's why we deliver such flat live shows. <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> anyway, uh, good to see two lads on the Arsenal bench. You could mistake for one of those definitely legit imported American candy shops on Oxford Street. Sweet Heaven next to each other. James Sweet and Aidan Heaven, of course. I mean, that, I mean, it shows sort of the youngsters that Arteta has, and you know he doesn't bring them on in the way that Klopp does, which we will get to uh, in a bit. Um, just on the coefficient, Lars, because you know there are fans of. Tottenham and Manchester United and Aston Villa are watching this thinking, hang on a second, we need <laughs> the English teams to start really turning up because Manchester United haven't, Newcastle United haven't. So they're, they are waiting on this. And at the moment, England, will, the Premier League will not get a fifth place, but obviously there's a lot of football to be played, right?
2: Yeah, no, as it stands, it's Italy and Germany who are uh, who are top of the pile there. England are, are lagging a little bit behind. I, I guess, the, and, and, and what will have hurt England is... Um, is 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 losing uh losing teams in the group stage of the Champions League. I mean that's 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 bad for your coefficients. But the uh, the up the advantage is that uh you don't get really more points for winning in the Champions League than you get in the Europa League. So if for instance Liverpool were to win the Europa League that would be enormously helpful. Uh so, so and, and 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 feasibly you'd expect English teams to do well in the Europa Conference League as well. So I I still have faith that the English coefficient will, will, will turn out uh, the way those teams want. But, uh, uh, but but the English team stuffing it up in the Champions League, uh, Newcastle and, 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 um, and Man United was, was certainly very, very unhelpful.
1: Yeah, very funny if um, Spurs fans have to cheer Arsenal in a Champions League final. To- <laughs> it,
2: which could happen. And also just remember the day after Newcastle went out of the Champions League group stage, I heard quite a few pundits say, well, you know what? They're better off not getting into the Europa League. And I was like, lads, that given that fifth is really not an improbable scenario for Newcastle, that could turn out to be very, very wrong. I mean, contributing to England not getting that spot would uh, is not helpful, I don't think, for those teams.
1: In the other game, uh, Napoli won, Barca won. Jonathan, not a classic. I mean, quite an interesting game. I thought Barca started better. Napoli, obviously, under their new manager, came into it. By the end, you sort of felt Barca were holding on and then Barca almost won it with the last kick.
3: Yeah. And it's, it, you know, I find it still quite curious to see sort of Luminium at 16. I think he became the youngest ever player to appear in the Champions League knockout stages. That's, that's, I think 16 years, 200 and something mm-hmm. days, um, almost carrying FC Barcelona, which is, you know, a massive, such a massive club. Uh, he, he seems to have almost become the figurehead I, I, was, I was at in Spain a couple of weeks ago and uh, he's like front page of all the, you know, sports papers, uh, Mundo Dapportivo and others because of how well he's playing. You know, he's, he's been, been credible really. And I'm kind of, I've got kind of split opinions on this, on a 16 year old having that much pressure on them, um, having to carry such a massive team. But at the moment, he, he's taken to it really well and, um, you know, putting an okay performance in this one. I, I know he got substituted. Obviously, Lewandowski and Osimhen were the two, the two goal getters. Uh, Osserman back from, you know, that a couple of nations where, we won't talk too much about Nigeria's uh, disappointment in the final there, but um, yeah, no, I, I think both teams would probably be fairly satisfied with this one. Uh, I don't think either side was necessarily amazing, but at the same time, neither side kind of let themselves down. I would have expected Napoli maybe to to get a result, but they are in a bit of a you know transition phase at the moment, a bit of turmoil going on there. So I think that's maybe to be expected, and obviously Barcelona, are, you know. Um, they haven't been the Champions League sort of heavyweights for the last few well, haven't haven't been the Champions League heavyweights have they for the last few years. I mean, they weren't even in the knockout stages last season, um, having dipped into the Europa League. So a curious game really. It didn't really I don't think you could really I couldn't really conclude too much about either side. I don't know what, what you other guys thought.
1: Yeah. I mean actually that, that um that Lewandowski goal, Lars, was Barca's first goal in the knockouts for sort of more than a thousand days. I think Messi was the last guy to score in a knockout game for Barcelona, which sort of feels extraordinary. But I guess a thousand days is only three years. Anyway, what did you make of the game?
2: I am hearing words like interesting and intriguing. and I, I just thought this was a bit crap as well, to be honest. I was doing my usual thing. I was doing my usual thing of, <laughs> Fine, yeah. usual <laughs> thing of having both games on at the same time and again like you having the audio from one and kind of looking at the other i find that's the best way to, to double double screen and what usually happens is that your eye is kind of drawn to watch whichever game where the most is happening here my eye was drawn to my phone and to like to the <laughs> to, wall I to mean, escape to the country to, yeah, wasn't yeah, it? yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe could, could i find 24 on somewhere is that is that the, which streaming service has that now what, what, it, it was it was real bad and i just think it's I know it's not news because we've been talking about it all season but both these teams are are so much worse than they were last year. I mean Napoli is one of the most scandalously bad title defenses in recent memory. Like you start out like with Spalletti leaving, you hire Rudy Garcia which you should never do and you, you sort of end up putting Walter Mazzarri in charge and 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 now you have the, the Calzona guy who's also in charge of what is the Slovakia? or Slovenia, I always mix yeah. them up. And Slovakia. this is like I, you, yeah. you shouldn't have a guy who's like j- doing this part-time whilst also managing a national team from Eastern Europe. Like that this is not how Scudetto winners are supposed to behave. So it's just <laughs> not a good situation for them. And given what an absolute mess Napoli are in, I was kind of expecting Barcelona to win and of course they dominated possession. Well, they did for a while. But they weren't great either. And you mentioned uh, Laminia Mal obviously looks fantastic. And you've got Pedri there who looks fantastic. And that's kind of the good news for Barcelona are these young players. But all this stuff they've done around, the, the stuff they've spent all the Lever money on, I'm not sure, man. Like Lewandowski obviously scores a great goal. And Lewandowski will do that. But I do wonder when you are this club that's in huge financial problems that, that, that you've kind of made much worse by selling off bits of your future income for short-term success. And 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 the thing you've part of what you've spent it on is giving a massive contract to old man Lewandowski. I I, I do think that's the sort of behaviour that sort of future sports management students will be be pointed to at a blackboard showing like what on earth were they doing? This is really stupid for the uh, for, for the club. I I tend to think. Um, but uh, all that being said, and we have gone on for a bit now they eventually got into it like the, i think the goal from Ossiman, which is a really good goal and you can see why Ossiman is one of the most sort of in demand number 9s in the world uh that was i think their second shot in the game never mind on target i think that was their second effort and it was like in the 79th minute after that they woke up a little bit and and had a bit of something about them and 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 kind of started pressing a bit and running a little bit but no this was this was this was real bad i thought and and, and barcelona in a way, I guess if you're Barcelona, you're happy to come out of the away game with a draw, bearing in mind how bad they've been defensively in the league. Like, Barcelona have conceded 34 ge- goals in the league. That's just, like, one fewer than Cadiz, who are 18th. So, like, it's it, 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 for them to get out of the away game, having only conceded once, I guess, is fine. But, but given how bad Napoli were, you also feel like they kind of maybe should have won here. And it was just, no, no, no. It was frustrating to see that many clearly good footballers on the same pitch produce so little of notes.
1: Yeah. Um, just, to, just for us Slovenian and Slovakian uh, listeners to apologise for the flippancy of our Nordic uh, correspondent yeah, there. You know, like, it's like, you know, it's like saying Norway and Sweden are the same, which we all know they are, but obviously which we Which people would never do say, say and that. no one ever apologises. So actually. <laughs> I think you're all right. Uh, anyway, uh, that'll do for part one. Part two, we'll do Liverpool's victory over Luton in the Premier League. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Liverpool 4, Luton 1. Uh, Liverpool back to four points clear then at the top of the table. I mean, there was a bit of a scare for them, Baz, in this. One Not down at half-time. Struggled to create in the first half. I don't know if any part of you thought at half-time, Oh, this might be the game. Or did you think, well, they'll probably score three in the second half and it turned out to be four?
0: We all know Luton scored far too early. Yes. <laughs> um, and they were ultimately made, punished for their impertinence. Uh Liverpool have recovered 22 points from losing positions this season. They were at home. Um, admittedly, they have a lot of injuries, missing Salah, Matip, Jota, Nunes, Sabozlai, Curtis Jones, Trent Alexander, Arnold, Alisson, each of whom uh, probably costs far more than, or are worth far more than Luton's entire squad. Uh, but, um, yeah, the Klopp, they were poor in the first half. Klopp got them in at halftime, changed things around a bit, I think moved Connor Bradley into midfield, moved Graven Birch out wide, played with two at the front, up top, and uh, the goals eventually came. The only thing, I, and it's no great surprise, the only thing I would say that most of the goals were avoidable from a Luton perspective. They fell asleep for one. It came from a throw-in. There was one from a corner, Mm. or it was a two. But anyway, yeah, they they were avoidable goals. Rob Edwards said after the game, you know, we we just made them mad by scoring the first goal. (laughs) And he said his team could learn a lot from the the exhibition of counter-pressing put on by uh, Liverpool. So, uh, you know, a defeat for Luton. We all expected it, but they continue to score goals. They continue to play reasonably well against, very well or reasonably well against elite opposition. And I, I wouldn't imagine Edwards was too disappointed at losing
1: the game. Um, I wonder if Conor Bradley's been put into midfield. Where where the hell's Trent Alexander-Arnold <laughs> meant to go <laughs> up, up front? Um, uh, Jonathan, Luis Diaz was sort of shooting from everywhere. He's got real manic vibes and I get, I guess that because Darwin Nunes gets all the headlines for being the sort of chaos centre-forward or attacking player, So I forget that Luis Diaz has quite a lot of chaos as well, even though he took his goal beautifully in the end.
3: Yeah, I think it's, it's up to, isn't it? We have to credit for the, the stat that they all five Liverpool, forward, all five Liverpool forwards have scored 10-plus goals this season, which is a really good sign of their strength in depth, to be honest. And I think that's an underrated element of Liverpool's uh, squad, just the fact that they, they have good strength in numbers. You know, a lot of people are talking about the injuries, maybe to to Jota, for example. But they they can replace them with. I know I know Elliot's maybe not a forward. He played a bit in a bit more of a forward role in this game. But they could they've, they've just got so many options to replace him, Gakpo, uh, Diaz, as he mentioned there, and, and others. So yeah, Diaz is you know he's a really good player. He kind of had his injuries, didn't he, last season, and and maybe went out of the radar. But you know everyone remembers when he first joined the club. He was he was so he had such an immediate impact. And it's just a testament to sort of like the, the, the recruitment at Liverpool in terms of how they recruit their forwards. And, and, and even the midfield, they've sort of really solidified it. The likes of Endo and, and Graven Birch and and, and and McAllister, of course. So, yeah, they definitely have the depth, I think, to challenge for the title and, and potentially go all the way. I mean, they already are challenging for the title, of course, four, four points clear now. So I don't think, even though they do have some injuries, you know, to the likes of Trent and Allison. And others I don't think that's necessarily going to massively hamper them I think they've got the strength to beat most teams it's of course that game against Man City probably that's going to be so decisive and that everyone's sort of looking at in the calendar um, for how their season's going to go but they they really are in an excellent position with a real chance of of winning the title I think
2: so lovely moment I thought for Chidozie Gbenet to score because I believe he is a Liverpool fan so there's, there's exciting times for him to score at, at Anfield and he seems like a lovely lad Um I would just echo what Barry mentioned about the goals being avoidable. And this worries me a little bit about Luton because I've, I've watched most of their recent games. and They've started conceding a few goals that are of of the kind of nature that we may be worried about Luton conceding when they got up. You know, this is where you look at and think, good lord, someone should have done a little bit better there. I'm sure Rob Edwards is right on top of this and they did so well for so long. Uh, being competitive and listen, still games left, yada yada yada. But I, I, I'd, I'd worry a little bit about that development. They've, they, they've started conceding soft goals recently. I feel.
1: Yeah, just on, uh, just on um, Liverpool and the use of their youngsters. Uh, Benji says, can we give the credit to the role of Jaden Dans in the fourth Liverpool goal? The son of Neil Dans. Who in my mind is twenty-four? So like this is a, a, a nightmare. Um, who I think had a music career. I think it was sort of prime Soccer AM guest because he sang songs and was a footballer. Neil Danz. There's a lovely moment where who, who, which who, which one was Neil Danz? Because I was thinking of Scott Dan. No, Scott Dan is a who I remember a... centre back. Very different. Very different. Yeah, he
0: he he did a Phil Bab on a goalpost yeah. once. So I'm su- no. He probably may not have
1: tuned I, <laughs> I don't know. Neil Danz is a sort of who did he play for? Millwall, I think. Palace. That's my sort of. Colchester. Uh, did he play for Colchester? Did he? Yes, uh, he did. Good one representing there. So, uh, mm. uh, Jonathan, our Colchester correspondent. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I may have not got his career totally correct, but there was a nice moment when Rob Edwards came on and said to Jaden Dance and to Jürgen Klopp, "I played against your dad because uh, uh, he did play against Neil Dance." But Klopp does use his youngsters in a way that perhaps you know, you know, Arsenal made one change which we criticized bring Georgino on. But, he, you know, he could have made other changes, um, brought on more youngsters in that game. And I think that is, a, you know, that is a sign that you have to have great belief in those guys. If you look at Connor Bradley, who may not have got his chance without the injuries, now looks like a, a stunning player. Um, Cam says, hi, Max Barry and crew. Long-time listener, first-time writer here. Found your riffs on Darwin Nunes' goal hilarious on Monday's pod. This was the chip or dink versus Brentford. Um, as a latino listener born in peru and raised in colombia i have no idea where vaselina comes from as we were talking about scooping vaseline from the tub however i wanted to add a few maybe more poetic names for the move that that were generally more common in my childhood a sombrero literally a hat which visually makes a lot more sense i would think or a globito a little balloon which is also a nice image and far better than that of vaseline uh thanks for your good work says cam thank you cam I'll happily call it a globito going forwards, a little balloon. Liverpool played Chelsea in the Carabao Cup final, and this game is more tantalising, Barry, than when they both came through their respective semi-finals. I would say. Well, I suppose
0: it's more tantalising because Chelsea are better, and Liverpool are going to be without quite a few players, yes, uh, through injury. Are you not tantalised? Um, no, not really. I'm. I'm not particularly tantalised. The last two cup finals. These teams have played have been diabolically bad. They both finished nil nil. Chelsea won both of them on penalties. The very same thing could happen again on Sunday. I hope it doesn't. A few weeks ago, I would be hugely confident of a Liverpool victory, and now I wouldn't be confident of them winning
1: one bit. Hmm. And it, it would be so Chelsea, Lars. I sort of, you know, all the things you say about you know, time and, you know, just every sort of every cliche you use about football, and Chelsea just ruin it by being garbage and winning things and you could just see that happening
2: well and 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 Chelsea have not been quite as bad this season as a lot of their uh as a lot of their critics w- would have it that's that 's a hill i 've been uh, willing to, if not die on, but certainly uh, sustain major injuries and contract diseases on this season is that Chelsea are actually not that terrible. And, and I just noticed something looking at this, uh, looking ahead to this game. I think we all agree we have a pretty clear top three in this season. We have Liverpool, Man City, and Arsenal, who are like quite, by a long way, better than, than the chasing pack. In the league, Chelsea have sp- played uh, fi- five games against these three teams. They've nearly played all the games against them, five games. They've only lost one of them. Um, which is interesting. They, they haven't won any either. They've got one defeat and four draws against Liverpool, Man City and Arsenal but it is there is something about the way they're set up that makes them quite nasty to play against for these top teams because they're very strong on the counter and they've got quite a lot of guys who are good at running into space and, and doing things and, and they do generally speaking seem more comfortable in these games, Chelsea, than they are when they're trying to break down a low block. I mean they've, they've lost a bunch of games against mid-table teams who they should really not lose against uh, but against these top teams they tend to turn up, and I think there's something about the game state that suits the players they have a little bit better. Uh, Barry's obviously completely right, is that these were so boring the last time we did this, but I just wonder... I'm not sure Liverpool have it in them to be boring right now because they've got so much going on going forward and they never fully convince you defensively and coming up against a good counter-attacking team in Chelsea. I just think this should be fun. The, the XF, the expected fun is quite high going into the game. But as we know from XG doesn't always translate into actual G... Whether the XF will translate into actual fun, uh, Sunday will tell, I guess. Jonathan, your thoughts
1: on the Carabao Cup final before we break for part two?
3: Yeah, I think Liverpool will win it quite comfortably, actually. Uh, I think Chelsea, they've been okay this season, but the last time they played Liverpool, they lost 4-1. And I think Lars' point there about they they haven't been too bad, but they haven't won any of those those games. And I just think Liverpool have way too much for them. So now I'm going to sort of um, dampen that parade a little bit on Chelsea. So, sorry to do that, but I, I, I can't see anything other than Liverpool winning quite, quite easily. I
2: would agree. Liverpool are clear favourites, for sure. I'm just being the hype man. Yeah. I'm trying to make this sound more interesting than it possibly is.
1: Um, <laughs> which is what, what we need on this pod. <laughs> just somebody make, yes. make it more interesting <laughs> than, 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 than this actually is. Anyway, that'll do for part two. Part three, we'll look at the Premier League fixtures. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, On paper, one of those not fascinating fixture lists, like a fight to be last on Match of the Day. The last time I said that, there was a record number of goals in the Premier League. And uh, and so perhaps these games will be great. Manchester United-Fulham. Jim Ratcliffe has been speaking, Jonathan. Uh, What did you make of what he had to say if you uh, listened to it?
3: I think, to be honest, from a United fan perspective, it was akin to not eating anything for 10 years and then being given some Jaffa cakes (laughs) Um, in the sense of just the complete void of any leadership from the top and any even statements for 15 years, uh, 18 years or whatever it's been. And then suddenly having someone come out and start making bold statements about knocking Liverpool or knocking Manchester City off their perch. It was... No matter how boisterous it was, I think, like I say, from a United fan perspective, it was it was it was nice. It was nice to hear. You were just
1: too hungry to analyse it properly. You were just like <laughs> gorging, like the cookie just monster. Crumbs, you were just like crumbs going of, everywhere. Just
3: crumbs of optimism to to cling onto. That even no matter how much hot air it could be, it, it, it felt nice. Um just, just hearing someone with ambition. But just how long have you not been eating for <laughs> is the concern?
2: Because if you're really starving, then Jaffa Cakes, like nutritionally, is probably yeah, not what your body point. needs. I mean, that, that could could be really dangerous to eat the wrong thing after.
1: Yeah, he said, uh, look, nobody's been successful at Manchester United in the, the last 11 years. That would say to me, there's something wrong with the environment. Um, it's not constructive of me to blame anyone. Give us a little bit of time. Try to be patient. Uh, we'll try and build Manchester United back to where it should be. I thought. I thought actually... Barry the most interesting thing for a neutral point of view is what he was saying about Old Trafford you know a big argument for regenerating the whole south side of Manchester getting a new stadium making the Wembley of the north um, I would mean to know what United fans would feel about leaving Old Trafford it feels just insane that they wouldn't play at Old Trafford but you know other other teams have moved grounds before uh, what do you make of it
0: yeah well I mean he made it sound like the area around Old Trafford is some sort of slum which it very much isn't Um And he wants uh, the taxpayer to pay for the redevelopment or the new stadium, and cited Twickenham, which wasn't paid for by the taxpayer, Wimbledon, which I don't think was paid for by the taxpayer, (laughs) as examples of why Old Trafford should be paid for by the taxpayer. He also, to be fair, mentioned uh, the O2 Arena, which was originally paid for by the taxpayer before being sold, and uh, West Ham's Ground. Uh, Which was built by the government and uh, was, you know, that ended up being a financial black hole, the manner in which it was handed to West Ham. Um, And people have pointed out the irony of a tax exile who's uh, based in Monaco or wherever it is, putting on the poor mouth and asking for government money uh, is a bit Irish. And I think this was raised at this briefing he gave to a dozen or so journalists. In INEOS Towers, uh, and he said, "Well, I paid taxes for sixty-five years. Then I fan- I reached retirement age and fancied a bit of sunshine, so I went to Monaco to live." So uh, he wasn't having any of that. I'm not sure, you know, that's a fair defence. Um, you know, you pay your taxes. <laughs> Just uh, in Ireland, we have the same sort of debates over. J.P. McManus, who's very generous with his money and gives it to charity and gives it to GAA clubs and whatnot and invests loads in the the racing industry. But, you know, maybe just pay your taxes instead or as well. But I thought the Ratcliffe briefing, you know, he said all the stuff Manchester United fans are lapping up. And if you read the comment sections under some of the accounts of this briefing, the amount of forelock tugging going on for Manchester United (laughs) fans is as nauseating as it is predictable. Uh, He wants to knock Man City and Liverpool off their perch. He wants Man United to win and play the best football in the world. Um, you know, so this is all catnip for Man U fans. But he's also bought himself time by saying it will take at least three years to do this. Uh, interestingly, he was quite non-committal on the Mason Greenwood thing. He he made it clear there could be a way back for Mason Greenwood, and he very conspicuously didn't support Eric Ten Hag, saying it would be in, inappropriate to comment on that when he was. More than happy to comment on any other thing he was asked, so a bit worrying for Eric Ten Hag, I would say, so he may very well revolutionize the way man united play and and get them back to winning ways, but there's not much he's done at Nice or Lausanne that would suggest he's he's the man for the job and i i, I have to say i'm I'm very suspicious about him uh, and it's mainly his his uh Relationship with David Brailsford that makes me just smell a massive rat. I, I I think Brailsford's a charlatan, but you know other opinions are available, and that's just the reason I think that is because I I take a keen interest and have covered um, professional cycling, but he may very well be a, a genius when it comes to kind of running a football club.
1: How did those jaffa cakes taste now, Jonathan? After that,
2: <laughs> very much enjoyed him saying that it wouldn't be constructive to sort of blame anyone. And presumably, the follow-up was because they're still technically the majority owners. So I probably shouldn't <laughs> like stick the probably shouldn't stick the boot in in the media from day zero. one point he made, which I actually thought—I mean, I—I'm as cynical as as Barry is. I'm more of the team. Uh, Uh, fags and cynicism than Team Jaffa Cake in in this particular regard Uh, but he did make a point which I thought was valid which is that that he's He's said something about already having made some mistakes in terms of running a football club and he's just kind of made them elsewhere because of course they they did make a mess of Nice initially like they, they weren't great after taking them over but they then things have been going better recently so he has had a sort of a dry run on the Riviera so to speak before he now you know tries to play with the big boys and and run Man United which I guess there is some value to that.
1: That all being said, if I was a Manchester United fan as Jonathan said I would be enthused that there is a man there who supports the football team, who said it is a childhood dream, who is sort of at least shows some interest in Manchester United being good on the pitch. Like that is that is like, I know the bar is low, but like if I was a United fan, I think I would be feeling those things. You know, there are no guarantees, of course.
3: I'm quite interested in in, in Barry's comments on um, Steve Relfson, so I don't know if there's a chance to elaborate on that. But yeah, I think in terms of what I was sort of trying to get at is when you look at it from that perspective, and I, I take on board everything um, you guys have said, which I find like, I, I'm not, at the end of the day, it's, it's words, right? It's any, Anyone can say anything and sound good. And, and let's see what happens in three years time, to be honest. But I think what, I, what I, the point I was trying to make is I've just done a, funnily enough, I've just done a um, module on uh, leadership uh, as part of our, as part of the NBA I'm doing. So there's a, there's a concept called charismatic leadership where obviously the leader comes out and has all these big, uses like metaphor and uses grand statements to basically lay a marker of, of their leadership attention. And so for, for me, I found it. And whilst I do bear in mind what Barry is saying, and I'm not, I'm not saying I bought it, but what I'm saying is that for, for, for United who have had just no communication from the top, a general feeling for nearly two decades that money is the you know, with using the club as a cash machine and withdrawing the interest, using the club as a, you know, taking the interest and, Paying everyone dividends and not really being bothered about anything, but maybe finishing top four, um, having someone finally talking about trying to win trophies and trying to have success and tr- trying to play good football w- was something that's been really lacking there at, at United for like twenty, like a good fifteen years since maybe say Ferguson retired or you know thirteen years, uh, how many of, of years it is now, but over a decade. So I think from that point of view, that was what I found quite interesting about it. Whether I bought it or not is, is different, but. I definitely think from a from a leadership point of view he, he said all the right things. Um I quite enjoyed the comment about um Manchester United being a completely different prospect to every other any other club in London because I think there was a comparison with Chelsea made there in there somewhere. So he, he he was careful to take pot shots at pretty much every single club in the Premier League, which which was quite interesting. So I, I, I can definitely see the sort of anti Manchester United fans' backs being up because he definitely made a few statements that would would have riled them, but when you've been laughed at for the last decade, I think, I don't think that's too bad to have a, someone coming out with a little bit of uh swagger about them. So I, I can certainly see, see both sides of it, but um I'm not, not sold, but it was definitely an interesting show. I thought, Um but I am interested in day uh, in Barry's comments there on. Sir Dave Brailsford. <laughs> yes. Producer Joel says, can we not elaborate on Dave Brailsford, please? <laughs> 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 the other thing, the other thing I'll say, move it, moving swiftly on just to, just to, quickly go away from that. Um, also, in terms of United, it's it's nice to not see sort of accountants being put in high positions. So in terms of actual action so far, it's from a United point of view, it's nice to not see sort of accountants and, and bankers being put in high-level football positions. Um, obviously, the recruitment of Omar Barada from Manchester City, Dan Ashworth, I know that, that that's been talked about a little bit already, but seeing competent people trying to be put in high-level positions within the football club in footballing areas is also quite refreshing to see. So, I'd say it's an optimistic start, but i totally take on board um, Barry's and Lars' cynicism as well, because at the end of the day, like you said, it is just words. Other
1: games in the Premier League, um, Arsenal-Newcastle, Palace-Burnley, obviously Oliver Glasner's first game in charge, uh, West Ham-Brentford Wolves play Sheffield United, uh, amongst others. Any that take your fancy, Lars? Your expected fun on any of those? My,
2: my, my expected fun. I mean, I was distracted by a bumblebee here. Did you did you read up Arsenal Newcastle? Because the expected yes. fun is sky high on that one. Um, okay. The expected fun for current Newcastle games is. Uh, I mean, New, New, Newcastle are such a strange case because they were last season one of the tightest defenses in the league, and they were as well in this season up until the start of November thereabouts and then it just co- completely collapsed and if you look at their sort of XG since the start of November they've conceded more chances than anyone else in the league like they're, they're, they're worse than someone like Sheffield United and these guys like they're defensively all over the place and and they've kind of improved a little bit since coming out of the winter schedule but still like conceding so many chances and uh, but attacking a bit better now and I just thought it was odd listening to Eddie Howe talk about he was asked about all these goals going in after the game last weekend. And he said, well, we're not really doing much different from what we were doing before. You just sometimes get these random spells or something. He said, well, it's been 15 games. Like, that's not a random spell. Like, (laughs) something is, like, (laughs) profoundly wrong with the sort of how they try to defend... And their games are fairly chaotic and exciting, and I expect uh, for an Arsenal team that now has to, you know, they've just come back from Portugal, Uh, you know, that 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 could be interesting. I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to that. I am also going to be at Old Trafford for the United Fulham game, which is exciting for me, obviously, because United are. Yeah, they've got some exciting young players. And also Fulham is like the number one team in the Premier League that I cannot figure out. I believe Barry has said similar things. Like, I look at their team on paper. It looks a bit bad. Whenever I see them, they look bad. But then they keep picking up results when I least expect them. And I don't understand what's happening by, with Fulham. And I'm very stealth. glad that I'll be watching 90 minutes. Yeah, but what is happening? Why, why is this team picking up so many points? Because they never look good when I'm looking. So maybe they'll look good uh, at Old Trafford this weekend. I look forward to finding out.
1: Just on Arsenal Newcastle, you can imagine it will be Dan Byrne chasing Bakayo Saka like a Scooby Doo baddie. chases Chases shaggy and friends but
2: this is the premier league drinking game now this is completely if you're doing the premier league drinking game dan burn is the nippy winger runs away from dan burn down your entire drink this is just a big part of the drinking game right now
1: elliot says has a managerial merry-go-round ever consisted of just one manager before (laughs) Um, charlie charlie says neil harris is good at changing clubs isn't he max uh, yes, so Neil Harris, who was at Gillingham at the start of the season, got sacked, then became Cambridge United manager 77 days ago, uh, was unveiled as new Millwall manager uh, yesterday to save them from relegation. Uh, our mates they are not the top 20, amongst others, tweeting, surely the first to manage clubs in the Championship League One and League Two in the same season. Just needs to do really well with Pallet, with um, Millwall for about five games and then get the Sheffield United job so he can complete the set. Um Yes, I must admit, I was quite surprised when <laughs> I sort of woke up and there was all this sort of speculation. I was like, well, surely not. Like, he's only just, he's literally only just arrived. Like, like there's no way you would just leave. And it turns out there is a way, which is, you know, go to a bigger club, get paid more money, be near your house where you were a club legend, where you'd already managed them successfully and you're your their record goalscorer. Obviously, you know, all I'm doing is tweeting snake emojis and saying there's no no loyalty left in football. I guess I kind of see it from his perspective. But I did did sign up to Millwall TV uh, so I could watch his welcoming video. And... I've written a column about this, but the social media guy at Millwall is called Max. So it felt really personal. <laughs> he kept saying, well, the thing is, Max, you know, I'm here to change this club. I was like, all right, mate, you don't have to tell me, don't, you don't tell me in my face. I know you've fucked off, mate, but don't tell me. And he did say, I mean, he's quite good at, he does a lot of cliches. He's a bit like a sort of action man, you know, says the football club a lot, says in the building a lot. And he and he's, talks about he wants to galvanize everything like everything (laughs) everything is being everything is being galvanized everyone is going to be covered in zinc by the time he's finished but obviously um I I don't wish him any luck at all Millwall have a terrible fixture list they're quite low down in the championship I don't really want to start a turf war with Millwall I don't think that's a a really good thing for me or Cambridge (laughs) don't don't tweak the lion's tail no no but um Obviously, would like them to go down and us to stay up and see what reception Neil Harris gets at the Abbey when he comes back next season. But are you
3: saying you'd like them to be knocked off their perch, Max? I would like them to be knocked I mean, they're not really on a perch, are <laughs> they? They're, they're
1: in absolute shit time in the Championship. Like They're sort of at the bottom of a cage. i just quite like them to fall out of the cage and come and join us in our little shit cage. Um, anyway, we are. it's our biggest game of the season at home to 2 B United on Saturday, who stuffed us 5-0 earlier in the season. So not ideal timing has savvy all been linked with the Cambridge job <laughs> he's not, yes he's yet to put his hat in the ring or whatever it whatever it is but you know hopefully we'll be part of that tug of war
2: <laughs> I mean I saw Steve Bruce linked with the South Korea oh, job God. in one of the papers the other day so really anything can happen now I think we're <laughs> through some right. kind of looking glass where there's yeah. really no
1: <laughs> I did look at um, longest serving managers ever and uh, there's a guy called Fred Everest it was Or Everest was the uh, West Brom manager from something like 1902 to 1946. And I did think I reckon the players had got bored of training by year forty, wouldn't (laughs) they? You know, like that is really that's an awfully long time to to be managing one football club. But anyway, um, really quite funny. Here we go. Wickham's tweet: um, We can confirm that Luke Lee was shown a yellow card tonight for drying the ball on a steward's jacket prior to taking a throw-in. So there, that's a good booking uh, for for Wickham Wanderers. Uh, It reminds me of in the Soccer AM Glory years when we actually made, had Rory DeLapp. We designed some Soccer AM towels for Rory DeLapp and then they were banned from being used so he couldn't dry his footballs before his long throws. Uh, Finally, Caroline says, "Uh, Hi, Max and Barry. I'd massively appreciate it if you could give a shout out to my partner, Chris, on your podcast next week. He listens to the pod religiously and loves you both, although he has a massive soft spot for Barry. That's okay. Uh, We will be driving from where we live in Kent all the way to Hollyhead next Friday, where we're getting the ferry home to Ireland for our wedding. We have the Child of Prague on standby, an Irish tradition for good weather on your wedding day. I saw that you were looking for questions. So here is one for Barry. You might be able to impart some knowledge. Does the Child of Prague go under a bush or in front of the house for optimum luck and less chance of rain? Also, is it tempting fate to even involve the Child of Prague when we are, in fact, having a civil ceremony. There's no doubt we'll be listening to you on our five-hour drive to Wales, and this would completely surprise him. Thanks a million. Love the pod. Uh, Thank you, Caroline, uh, and good luck to you and Chris. Tell us about the Child of Prague, Barry, if you've ever Uh, heard of it. I'm afraid Caroline's
0: absolutely stumped me here. The the Child of Prague, it rings a faint bell, but I, not being particularly religious, uh, I don't know what it is. I presume it's a, a little statue of the baby Jesus or something. Uh, I've no idea if it controls the weather, but if Caroline and Chris are travelling today, Thursday, I I believe torrential rain is forecast for the whole of Britain. And I just hope, Max, that their uh, trip <laughs> from <laughs> east, the east, Hollyhead southeast of England yes. to Hollyhead in a car is more pleasant than ours was from Hollyhead to to London some years ago in ter- awful weather when we should have had a little child of Prague, although we wouldn't have been able to squeeze it into our pokey little hire car with five people in it. Uh, that was one of the worst days slash nights of my life. <laughs> and I wouldn't wish it on anyone. So yeah, I hope Caroline and Chris have a much more pleasant journey than we did and uh, I, I wish them every happiness and a great, great
1: wedding day. Mm, yes. I mean, I, and I hope on the ferry you don't, uh, as we did, arrived at Hollyhead. So obviously you're taking the reverse journey. You don't arrive at Dublin and just bob around outside Dublin for an hour and a half because it's too windy to moor. And and Caroline and Chris, if on the ferry you see a drunk <laughs>
0: Nottingham Forest fan, <laughs> avoid at all costs. <laughs> I'm not sure if he's an amenity, a fixture on <laughs> Stenus Even ferries, but yeah. Not drunk Nottingham Forest fans on, on ferries are to be avoided at all costs, it's, as Max
1: will tell you. I'm looking at a child of Prague. It is a little baby, basically dressed a bit like the Pope, I would say. I mean I'm not an expert, but it's got some kind of Catholic hat on and a big robe and it's on a little plinth. And um you can get it cheapest one you could get. Is about twenty-five quid. Um, you can get them for up to five hundred pounds. You know, so it depends on your what sort of child of Prague you're looking at. But uh, uh, you know, best of luck to the two of you and to your child of Prague. And I uh, hope you have a lovely wedding. And that'll do for today. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. You're welcome. Thank you, Max. Thanks, Lars. Thank you, Max. Cheers, Barry. Thank you. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Max Sons.